The Bible reading this morning comes from 2 Kings, chapter 4, verses 1 through to 44. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? The servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbours for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each jar is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her sons, Bring me another one. But he replied, There's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. One day, Elisha went to Shunem. All a well-to-do woman was there, who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put it, in, put it a bed in a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day, when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, You have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, She has no son, and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, Call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, You will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. His father sold a, told a servant, Carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. 
Did I ask you for a son, my lord, she said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, and stretched himself out on him. The boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite, and he did. When she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Elisha returned to Gilgal and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and picked as many of its gourds as his garment could hold. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, this is death in a pot, and they could not eat it. Elisha said, Get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people to eat, and there was nothing harmful in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalishat bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servants asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. We're at the fourth sermon this week of five on Elijah and Elisha, and we continue following the story of Elisha. And last week when Tom spoke, he showed the transition from the great prophet Elijah to Elisha. Elijah ascends into heaven, carried off by chariots of fire, and then Elisha inherits double the portion of, um, of uh, influence and power that Elijah had. And um, Elisha goes on to greatness. He restores the water supply of the people. He miraculously defends himself against a gang of youths. Uh, if you want to read that, it's a pretty full-on story. And then in chapter 3 of 2 Kings, um, the story shows how Elisha's influence expands. And, um, where's Tom? Is Tom here? Just, just, yeah, can you put a slide up for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll see up on the screen, like, there's this big war that occurs um, and there's an alliance formed between um, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Edom against the kingdom of Moab because the kingdom of Moab were trying to attack them. And so they, so they, they go south and they go around the Dead Sea. And Elisha's brought in as the great prophet 
because they run out of water and um, Elisha miraculously provides water for them. Um, you can go back onto the next slide of blank. Um, but then in, in 2 Kings 4, it zooms back in to Elisha from these you know, big war stories to being intimate stories about Elisha and his interaction with different people. And there's five miracle stories in what we just had in that chapter. Five um, miracle stories that show Elisha's compassion. First of all, there's the story of the widow and what the miracle is there is that this widow cannot provide for her family and Elisha miraculously um, um, provides oil through this miracle that she can then sell um, in a, it's oil of abundance. She can sell it and provide for her family. The second miracle is that she, that Elisha comes across his family in Shunam, and there's the Shunamite woman who um, uh, looks after Elisha and sets up a room for him and, and provides a bed. But she um, has no son, and Elisha prophetically prays for her, and then she's able to have. A son. So there's a second miracle. But then the third miracle is that later on, that son, some years later, that son um, has some kind of strange headache thing that causes him to die. And uh, Elisha resurrects him uh, in a miracle that looks very similar to the one that we read about with Elijah uh, um, in 1 Kings. Then the next, the next miracle is where. Um, uh, Elisha is meeting with the, the company of prophets in Gilgal and uh, one of the servants cooks a stew and puts in something dodgy in the stew, maybe some death cap mushrooms or something, I don't know what it was, but they, they look at it and they, they taste it and this is poisonous, but he makes it, he makes it not poisonous and edible. Then lastly, there's a feeding of a hundred with um, some barley bread, uh, and another feeding miracle, feeding hungry people. And it's not hard to see how Elisha is continuing the ministry of Elijah. It's sort of like Elijah 2.0, same kind of things, but expanded and more of, more of the miracles. But also it's not hard to see how Elisha is a bit like Jesus. Um, and ultimately these stories of compassion are about the Lord's compassion, because it's actually God doing the work. Anyway, so we, we've got th some things we can learn about compassion from these stories from Elisha. Um, so let's, let's see what we can learn about compassion, because that's what we're talking about this morning. So the first thing is compassion asks questions. You might see someone in need, and uh, you might think you know what's best for that person who's in need, but the best thing really to do, first of all, is to ask them questions. Ask the person what their needs are. Elisha does this. He asks lots of questions. He asks the widow two questions. In verse 2, how can I help you? Then tell me, what do you have in your house? Then the Shunammite woman, he asks three questions at the start. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? What can be done for her? And then later he asks three more questions. Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? He asks questions about the people's practical needs. So what can I do for you? And also their emotional needs. Are you all right? 
And then after these questions come the miracles. When we ask questions, it shows humility. It shows interest in the other person. It communicates care and compassion. If you want to be a compassionate Christian, then ask questions. Don't assume you understand what's going on in people's lives. I, I'm always shocked when I, when I assume I, I know something and then get into a conversation with somebody, I find out often the thing that's distressing them if, if there's distress or stressing them out is actually not the thing that I thought. If you're going to ask questions, tread lightly. Don't, don't push yourself into a situation. Allow for silence. Don't ask too many questions. Read the situation sensitively. And accept the answer you're given. There's nothing more annoying than a person who's, you know, ask you a question, then you answer, then they don't believe you. <laughs> That's not compassion. And if they tell you they don't want to talk, then that's fine. Don't keep pushing. Even Jesus asked questions, and I think that's amazing because he's the person, when, when we read the life of Jesus, we see that he can read people really well. He, he knows what's going on in people's lives. Yet he still asked questions. One time he was leaving Jericho uh, with his disciples and had a large crowd following him. And as they were walking on the side of the road, there were two blind men and the two blind men called out to Jesus, Son of David, um, have mercy on us. And the crowds told the, the two blind men to pipe down and to not stop harassing Jesus. But the two blind men yelled out again, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now Jesus stopped and looked at the blind men. And, and even though it probably was obvious what they're yelling out about, Jesus asked the two blind men, what do you want me to do for you? And Lord, Lord, they answered, give us sight. We want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and followed him. So compassion asks questions. But also compassion meets needs. If all we do is ask questions and then we're not actually showing compassion, what we're doing is showing sympathy. But compassion goes to another level. It actually involves action. Think about all the needy people in chapter 4 of 2 Kings that Elisha encounters. There's the worried widow who needs money, the barren Shunammite woman who then becomes grief-stricken at the death of her son, the prophetic company who are in danger of being poisoned, the hungry crowd, and even Elisha is a person in need. Um, look at verse 10, he needs a bed, he needs a table, he needs a chair, he needs a lamp. And Elisha acts by providing, providing oil, uh, providing a child, providing resurrection, providing food. And these are examples of miraculous acts of compassion. But there were also lots of um, little examples of everyday acts of compassion in the story, uh, the Shunammite woman acts in compassion towards Elisha by providing um, for him. The barley bread baker provides the bread for the people. Now, actively showing compassion can be really hard. Often our prejudice gets in the way. Think about all the times you've walked past um, a rough sleeper sitting on the, on the footpath and you kind of step around them and you think to yourself, 
oh, they're probably on drugs or they're probably there because of something they've done wrong in their life. And sometimes people's poverty is their own fault. There are lazy people that exist, people who have gambled away their money. As Proverbs 24 verse 30 says, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who, who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. And yeah, if you don't look for work, you don't end up earning much money because you're just being lazy and watching TV all day. But you know what? The Bible actually says most of the time that's not what the situation is. Most of the time, the Bible says there's poverty because of injustice, because of natural disasters, because of people being oppressed. The people in this passage are in need because of real serious reasons that are out of their control. The widow's husband had died, that's why she's a widow, and that's why she's poor. The Shunammite's son had died because he had some unknown illness. There was a famine. And Elisha and the company of prophets were in need because they chose ministry as a profession. In each case, as Elisha encounters these different people, he looked for a way to meet their needs. And as a poor wandering prophet, he allowed others to meet his needs. And that's how it works in God's kingdom. You serve one person, another person serves you. We're a mutually supporting community. Even Jesus, famous for his compassion and help to the poor, even he received help from others. At the start of Luke 8, there's this really great snippet of uh, insight into the life of Jesus. It says that he travelled from town to village with the 12, proclaiming the good news, and that several women came along with him who had previously been cured of evil spirits and diseases by Jesus. So there's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others, it says. And Luke tells us that Mary, Joe, and Sue, and others were helping to support Jesus and the Twelve out of their own means, it says. They gave out of their own means to support Jesus and the disciples. Compassion requires action... And it means serving people out of your own means. There's a quote from Henry Nouwen. I'm going to have that on the screen. Um, it really helps us to think. He's a famous Catholic monk. He says, Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the con condition of being human. This is what being a Christian is all about. When we do acts of compassion, when we bring meals to people, like what Beck was talking about with Lucy and Luke before, or when we open up our homes to people, or when we... Um, give people money that need money. We are, we are doing the works of Jesus. In fact, it was Jesus who said to Philip that whoever believes in me will do 
the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And the works that Jesus is talking about are the works of serving others. Jesus says you will do greater things than what he did, greater in the sense there'll be millions and billions of Christians all over the world, all throughout history, standing up for the marginalised, feeding the poor, welcoming refugees, healing the sick, befriending the lonely, educating the illiterate, building hospitals, schools and shelters, sending aid and aid workers all around the world. Each one of us has an opportunity here today to participate in this godly ministry of compassion demonstrated by Elisha and personified by Jesus. Sometimes we back away from acts of compassion because we don't want to take on the other person's suffering. We don't want to take on their burden. But the thing is, ministry requires sacrifice. You can't really be a person of compassion without making sacrifices, sacrificing your time, your money, your own emotional well-being. Since the COVID lockdowns, there's been this kind of wave of books come out in the Christian world, and not just the Christian world, but I've noticed it in the Christian world, on um, rest and on Sabbath and on having boundaries in your life and slowing down and not doing so many things. And I think that's been a good correction for, a, for overly busy Western Christians who just try and fit so much in that they're exhausted all the time and don't have time to breathe and don't have time for their faith. So that, that's been helpful correction. Uh, but as we have made this correction, we want to be careful not to substitute one idol, the idol of busyness, for another idol, which is the idol of self-care. Now, I'm not saying self-care is a bad thing, but it can be. Self-care can become an idol. We don't want to be so protective of our me time and rest that we have no time for others. Burnout is a real thing, but so is selfishness. Perhaps you have compassion fatigue, but I would say that's unlikely. Most people I know don't have compassion fatigue. There's a very rare few group of people that do. Look at uh, 1 John 3, which will be up on the screen, verse 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. The fuel that will drive you to acts of godly compassion is your, your response to Jesus' sacrifice, his sacrifice for you. Um, up on the screen there will be a picture of Uncle Ray Minicon, Aboriginal uh, Christian elder, um, Anglican minister in Sydney. Um, and um, the other, last week, Joe was trying to organise a, um, a phone-up interview with him and the meeting had to be changed a few times. The first time she rang and it had to be changed, it was changed because uh, Ray said, oh, we've just had six foster children land on our, on, our, on our doorstep and we have to look after them, set up beds all over the lounge room and taking these six children. We hear stories like this and we're inspired by these great Christians who are just so um, sacrificial and compassionate towards other people. 
This is Christian love in action. Compassion asks questions and compassion meets needs. But lastly, also compassion takes risks. Perhaps you feel nervous about embracing a life of compassion. It's understandable if you feel really vulnerable, like compassion does require taking risks, doing things you haven't done before, stepping out in faith. We should not think that because Elisha's story is in the Bible, therefore Elisha didn't find it difficult. Each step that Elisha took involved risk-taking. He'd never raised anyone from the dead. Can you imagine that risk-take? But look what he had to do to raise the boy. He went in the room with the boy's dead body. He shut the door, prayed like he'd never prayed before. He got on the bed, lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. That's what you call risk-taking. He stretched out until the body's boy grew warm. This is weird and reads weird and it's supposed to. Compassion involves doing weird things. Opening your home to six foster children who just appear, whatever it is. During the missionary, the great missionary revival of the 18th and 19th century, there were a group of missionaries and they were called one-way missionaries. One-way missionaries. And they were called one-way missionaries because they effectively bought one-way ticket to where they were going. And they were famous for actually packing all their things inside a coffin. Because they, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? But it's actually true. It's full on. I mean, this is so hard for us to imagine these in the 21st century in the West. How can you be that committed? They sailed away, waving goodbye to their family and friends, and they would never speak to them again. They might be able to write letters depending on where they're going, but most of them were going to places that had no way of sending off letters. There was this Methodist missionary uh, from England, from Yorkshire, James Calvert, who committed his life to the people of Fiji. And as he was arriving to Fiji, the captain of the ship said, you're going to lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go onto that island. And Calvert's response was, we died before we came here. These kind of missionaries, they died to themselves. They were crucified with Christ, as it says in Galatians 2.20. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, which I'll put on the screen, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, maybe you're not going to be a one-way missionary. Maybe you are. But here's one tip I'll give you, which... Uh, which will enable you to do an act of compassion that will transform you and it will turn you from being a baby Christian to a grown-up Christian. And this is the one piece of advice. It's very, it's, anyone can do this. If you, find, if you ever find yourself wondering this thought, you, you, you hear about a person in, in your life that has had something difficult happen to them and you wonder, I wonder how that person's going. The advice is, is this. Get on the phone and call them and ask them a question. How are you going? I've been thinking of you. I've been praying for you. Is there anything I can do for you? 
Let's say you hear someone's just got a, di a cancer diagnosis. You feel sad for them. You also potentially feel a bit triggered yourself. <gasps> what if it was me that got a cancer diagnosis? What if it was my family member? And you feel complicated feelings inside. And then for a minute you think, oh, other people will call them. They'll be looked after by other people. And you wonder, should you call? And then your fear kicks in. Well, what am I going to say? I'll, I'll be awkward and I'll say something embarrassing and I'll offend the person. And you park your thought for a while. But then you have to put on your grown-up Christian shoes. And you remember Elisha, who took risks of compassion. And you remember that Jesus died for you and said to his disciples to deny yourselves. So you pick up the phone and you say, hi, just ring to say, I'm thinking of you, I've been praying for you. How are you going? Is there anything I can do for you? And if they say they do need something, then you follow through with that. Incidentally, this is one good argument for why going to church matters. Because how can you be aware of your brothers and sisters in need if you can't see them? Every human being matters. Every person bears the image of God. Every person is loved by God. C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Radical compassion is not just about doing good. It's about living the cross-shaped life that Jesus has called us to live. It's about loving people, and not just with your emotions, but also with your courage and your hands and your feet. So let's ask questions. Let's meet needs and let's take risks in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we become a, a congregation of compassion and um, that we are brave and we step out and um, our love can be a love that is risk-taking and active and that we live lives of sacrifice for each other. Amen.